This episode of New Politics was recorded on November 12, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the US election and what it means for Australian politics. And sex in the city of Canberra. Why do government MPs find it so hard to keep their hands to themselves? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, a rebel with a rock and roll heart on a one-way ticket to oblivion. It's the end of another presidential campaign in the United States. Donald Trump and Mike Pence are on the way out, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are on the way in. The Democrats received the largest vote in US history, and for just the third time in the past 90 years, a sitting US president has been thrown out of office. Despite what the Republicans are saying, Donald Trump will leave the White House in January next year, even if he has to be taken out by security forces or seeks exile in a remote part of the world. Trump has influenced a wide range of right-wing nationalists around the world, Boris Johnson in the UK, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and closer to home, Scott Morrison in Australia. But now that Trump is on the way out, it will be interesting to see how the world leaders react to a new US president and how they adapt to Joe Biden's agenda of climate change, education, economic reform, and bringing back civility into the political system. There has always been the talk historically about how the Australia-US alliance traverses the political spectrum, but Scott Morrison has lost a key political ally in the US, and this Liberal national government has got a completely different worldview to the incoming Democrat administration. We should add, too, that the second highest vote-getter in any American election was Donald Trump in this election. So it was a very hard-fought election. Donald Trump can take some solace that he finally beat Barack Obama at something, and that was he he got more votes. He didn't get enough votes, that's clear, but still, I think it's worth pointing out to, to give a sense of how important that election was seen by both sides of the American political divide. Now, as for Australia, it's not great. Scott Morrison was very much in the Trumpian mold, I'm pretty sure that the reason Australia has been belligerent to China is because Scott Morrison believed that America would have Australia's back. This was always a very high-risk, problematic scenario. We now have major exports not being bought by the major trading partner and an America that has vastly changed. Now, if there's a coup which is successful, and that's within the realms of probability in such a year where where everything else has happened. That may help Australia, but under Trump, America was a declining power. It probably still will be under Biden, but it's possible that the decline will slow somewhat. Scott Morrison, I think, might have to ramp his work days up from three and a half to four to work his way through this one. The Australia-US alliance, well, it will remain strong irrespective of who's in government in the US and who's in government in Australia. Now, this is mainly because of military and strategic interests on both sides. So that's why quite often you'll get maybe a Labor government working quite well with a Republican government or a Democrat government working quite well with a Liberal national government in, in Australia. But politically, they're quite different. And I think the biggest issue 
that's going to be confronting Scott Morrison is climate change. And Joe Biden has made a big push about climate change. And obviously, there's other issues that will come into play for Joe Biden. There's the management of coronavirus, which Australia has done very well, whereas the United States has done very, very poorly. But that will be the biggest factor, climate change. You mentioned before there's also the trade issues as well. Those trade issues that have been going on between China and the US, they'll probably be alleviated somewhat because now there's a different administration. What the Chinese government tends to do is if there's a problem between a particular government or they have a particular issue with a president or a prime minister, they usually wait until that prime minister or their government leaves office. So I'd say that the US-China relationship will be alleviated somewhat. That's not good news for the Australian government because the trade spats that are going on between China and Australia will probably continue until there is either a change of prime minister or a change of government. There's going to be tensions between America and China regardless. They're two different styles of government. They're two powers jostling for the same power space. But like all governments, the Chinese government will work with people they can work with. And if that is a more open and honest and less aggressive Joe Biden than Donald Trump, that won't bode well for Australia. Now, Joe Biden may have Australia's interests in heart to a sense. There are defence facilities here. Australia is in a fairly strategic position in that, you know, we cover the other side of the Pacific for the Americans or the South Pacific for the Americans, plus what the Americans perceive as the East. So I don't think America is going to leave us in the cold, but I don't think they're going to give more than is absolutely necessary. And that won't include generous trade deals and a hole in the wheat market, a hole in the coal market, a hole in the other commodities we trade. You can bet America's going to try and fill that. They've got miners in Pennsylvania, which is a key state now for Joe Biden, not only his home state, but the state that really swung it for him. He's going to want to protect them as best as he can, even as they move towards renewables. And it took a long time for the election to be resolved somewhat, although there will be a recount in Georgia and it's still fairly close in some key states. But essentially, Joe Biden will become the next president and Kamala Harris will become the next vice president of of America. Biden and Harris's speeches, they were quite inspirational and quite a dramatic change from Donald Trump. Although, you know, we can agree that speeches and what you say on the public platform or a dais are one thing, but reality is quite a different thing. I do feel that the tone of public discourse is sometimes enough to make a significant change. And it feels to me that the adults are back in charge. Like The presidency of Donald Trump has been quite a joke over the past four years. And sure, there might be things that go on behind the scenes that we don't actually fully see, and they've been quite successful. The economy was turning around in the United States before the coronavirus started. But as far as the public face of the Republican administration, it's been a complete joke. The the rumours were that, you know, he only went for the presidency to promote the TV show and that the momentum uh, overtook him. There's been suggestions that he deliberately threw the election by telling his followers not to vote by mail so he could get out of the presidency. Now, the American presidency is one of the biggest jobs in the world. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I know that people like Ronald Reagan, particularly as he got older, didn't work after a certain time. But the office of the presidency is 24 hours, seven days a week. You can be woken up from your afternoon naps or your golf games. 
if you look at the physical decline, I guess, of somebody like Barack Obama, who leaves still a fairly fit man, but his hair is grey, his eyes are haggard, his face is tired. And you can see this Abraham Lincoln in you know 1860 as opposed to Abraham Lincoln in 1864, Bill Clinton in 1992 as opposed to 1996, even George W. Bush. It's a big job. We can say the same about the Australian Prime Ministership too and the British Premiership and the French Premiership, etc., etc. It's It's a big job and Trump wasn't up to it and didn't want to do it. I think that's fair to say. I think a part of him did want to win because winning is part of the brand, if you like. But he'd also set up the way the great con men did. He'd already planted the seed of this election will be rigged and we can't win to partly to prepare his followers that they weren't going to win, but also to give him a, a way of saving face. You know, oh, it was rigged. The contradictory claims to stop counting in states they were winning and to keep counting in states they were losing. <laughs> How this works in an internet era where everything you say is presented to everybody, I, I don't know. After election day, Donald Trump only performed in two media conferences. And I noticed that in the second media conference, the media actually started cutting off Donald Trump mid-sentence, correcting him and operating in a form of live fact-checking. Let's have a listen to this. There are tens of millions of unsolicited ballots without any verification measures whatsoever. Well, we're interrupting this because what the President of the United States is saying, in large part, is absolutely untrue. He began, and, and, and we're not going to allow it to keep going because it's not true. He began with there were, illegal, there were legal votes, and if they only count the legal votes, I easily win. If they count the illegal votes, they're trying to steal the election. There is not a scintilla of evidence that this is true. None. There's only words here. No truth. He said the pollsters knowingly got the polls wrong to create voter suppression. There is no evidence of any kind that this has happened, and he's provided none. He said that they were, there is actually a red wave in this election. That is categorically false. He said there was election interference. There is no evidence to support that. And the president has offered none. So this was absolutely fantastic. In many of these sequences, Donald Trump would speak. He mentioned that he'd been robbed. He actually won the election. There was widespread voter fraud that they were leading on the night of the election. And how could they possibly now be behind? He was the winner. And the newsreader would gradually lower the volume of Donald Trump, speak over the top of him, outline that what he said or what he was saying was completely false, completely wrong, and shouldn't be taken seriously. Now, this is something that I'd really like to see introduced into Australian politics. I wish it would happen more here, and I'm getting the sense that it's starting to happen more here. With the defeat of Donald Trump, and things like, and we're getting back to this, the petition started by Kevin Rudd for a Royal Commission into media ownership, I'm getting the sense that we're waking up from the long con, if you like. We're waking up from a state of hypnosis to stop the president halfway through. Now, of course, all politicians tell falsehoods, make mistakes, lie to protect something, but no one, 
not George Bush, not Bill Clinton, not in Australia, Scott Morrison, although he's close, lied the way that Donald Trump did. And we need more of this called out. I guess the difference in the US was that over the past four years, a lot of reporters and journalists have been calling out Donald Trump in his media conferences. At least they've had more courage than the journalists that we get in Australia. Quite often what happens in Australian politics is that Scott Morrison will perform his media conference and he'll say things that are completely incorrect. Sometimes there are barefaced lies. Well, not sometimes. Quite often there are barefaced lies that come out. Quite often reporters will report that as though it was fact. And that's I think that's a serious problem within Australian politics. There needs to be more calling out of this. It's a pity that it took four years before they started doing that to Donald Trump. But I'd say that something like that would be something that viewers would really like to watch on Australian television. Firstly, I, I believe that it's okay for journalists maybe not to call a politician out right at the time because facts come from everywhere. Uh, you mightn't have everything at your fingertips. Um, you might not get the opportunity to call back because they say it and then walk off or what have you. But I do think that within a reasonable time frame, everything should be checked double-checked and then held to account. I think that we need to bring these types of standards in to Australia. We've got to let all journalists ask questions rather than picking a handful of favourites. I think, too, it's fair to let the speaker finish what they're trying to say before interrupting them and then follow up with questions, with further questions. Uh, Often outrageous stuff and obviously outrageous stuff gets said with no follow-up. That would lift the standard of public debate to where a lot of our senior politicians wouldn't make it. People in Australia that barely take an interest in politics here are hardly going to take too much notice of politics in the US. And sure, it's a big global event and they'll know that Donald Trump is on the way out and Joe Biden is on the way in, but that's probably about it. There's... The more obvious policy issues that we've already talked about, climate change, the change in economic thinking, global trade, the management of the coronavirus, Australia does have enough autonomy to think and behave politically in a way that suits itself. But when politics in the US changes, and it might take a while before it filters through to other parts of the Western world, but political and social change in the US does affect political change globally. I think there's been a paradigm shift. Joe Biden is really a centre-right candidate. I don't think the left have too much to be excited about. Um, and there's a sense, too, that the he should have done much better. The Senate is still in doubt. They should have won a landslide in the Senate. It was the, the seats were poised the right way for them. They had good candidates, but they put a lot of resources into trying to unseat the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and leaders are very, very, very hard to unseat. And instead of putting those resources into closer seats where they might have won, they blew a lot of resources trying to win what was essentially an unwinnable seat. Having said that, we'll call it the Trumpian or the Murdochian approach is probably starting to finish. They're not going to lay down and die. But... I think that the tacit public support they have has changed. And, I, and we saw that as soon as it was clear that Trump wasn't going to win, Republicans started coming out and saying he's not going to win. Fox News, you could see them trying to change horses midstream. 
as if they had always been fair and balanced. I think if I was Boris Johnson in Britain, because Brexit will no longer get American support, Joe Biden has very firmly placed himself behind Ireland and Northern Ireland. And even here, our press is starting to start to be a little bit more critical of the Morrison government. Now, there's a whole range of reasons for this, but I think they've been emboldened by the fact that that type of power is starting to fade. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, sex in the city and the private lives of politicians. There have been more revelations about the misogyny and sexual misbehaviours of key federal government MPs, with a series of inappropriate activities in late-night bars of Canberra, sexual harassment and ministers having their way with young female staffers. Christian Porter and Alan Tudge, they've been presenting themselves as family men and, in Tudge's case, arguing against same-sex marriage and promoting the virtues of the nuclear married family, but behind the scenes, Both of them have been serial sex pests and quick to have their way with the selection of young female staff members and advisors. Now, I might be a little bit naive about this, but I thought that the main purpose of the life of a parliamentarian might be to advocate for the political causes they believe in, represent their electorate in the best way possible, and be, generally, a role model for the community. But here we have... Liberal Party MPs deciding that the best way to represent their community is to vomit into plastic bags, kiss young girls in public bars, and behave like sexualised bigots. It's almost like these MPs haven't been able to leave behind their frat party days from university. Yeah, and that's exactly it. They're uh, man-children, they're uh, arrested development, all of the psychological phrases you can come up with. I prefer people of, you know, selfish people of low character. When you think of the great non-Labor attorneys general, you know, Menzies, Isaac Isaacs, Henry Bournes Higgins, Percy Josky, Garfield Barwick. Now, this is not to agree with them politically, but they were men who took the law very, very seriously. They were, were men who privately behaved fairly impeccably and you know, they were men of substance and intelligence, something it is clear Christian Porter is not. And you often find that growing up in great privilege, not always, but often, you get people who act like they can get away with stuff. And this is clearly Christian Porter. His position is really untenable. 
It really is. He clearly doesn't have a great grasp of the law. And one of the things that has been notable is the lack of quality attorneys general in the last three liberal governments, that of Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison. And I'm told that no senior lawyers who generally jockey for a safe seat so they can become attorney general want to work in these governments because of the disregard for the law, the disregard for any sense of working in the law. George Brandis was a terrible, you know, essentially not much more than a conveyancer, forces himself into the to be a SC in Queensland, uh, which nobody really felt he was suitable for. Christian Porter's not much better. He at least was a bit further up the chain, but he's certainly not one of the top Western Australian lawyers. I can't see how his position is tenable. He'll survive. He's not about to resign. I suspect... They'll throw Gladys Berejiklian under the bus first because she's a woman and to try and distract from the other two. Then they'll get rid of Tudge if necessary. Porter will be protected because they don't want to have the damage of losing a senior minister and an attorney general. Having said that, the longer he stays and the longer Tudge stays and the longer Gladys stays, the more damage they will do. There's talk that Christian Porter will lose his seat in Western Australia. I don't I haven't looked at the seat, so I don't know if that's possible. But I'm hearing that they've already started scouting around for good independence to turf him at the next election. Pointing to Zali Stegel, Maxine McHugh and others who've gotten rid of uh very powerful cabinet ministers. Well, you also have to wonder what the consequences for these members of parliament actually is. Barnaby Joyce went through a similar process a few years ago. Similar accusations were made against him. He's actually still in parliament. And it's also a question of when will these guys learn? And there's a whole range of excuses that have been bandied around that Canberra can be a dark, cold, lonely place. They're away from family and friends, but this is what they sign up for. It's not like they don't know that this is what they're in for. And I noticed that the upper levels of the Liberal Party, they've been looking at it more of a political management process. They've been quick to accuse Labor. They said, well, this is how Bob Hawke used to behave. Well, Bob Hawke was a philanderer, but he wasn't a hypocrite on these matters. And they've done nothing at all about the women involved. They haven't looked at the misogyny within the Liberal Party itself. Christian Porter, he'll ride this out. Alan Tudge will probably ride this out as well. They'll probably get promoted. They'll be pushed into the background for a little while. They may be made to stand down for a little while, depending on what happens over the next couple of weeks. But then if that does end up being the case, they'll return into a more senior position in a couple of years' time. And that's the way that these political processes are managed. It's it's a matter of accusing other people, the all-sides argument as well. Everyone does it. There is that talk about the Parliament House being a cold place, but it's very women-unfriendly as well. There's a lack of family-friendly facilities. There's There was a childcare centre that was developed there some time ago, but I think that was closed down. It's all structured around that law firm model where it's male-dominated, and it's exacerbated by the fact that only 22% of MPs in the Liberal Party are women, and that compares to 48% in the, in the Labor Party. And we have to open up that question, is Parliament a safe place for women to work in? Well, they asked Anne Rustin, and the answer was extremely interesting. Scott Morrison talked right over the top of her. That's gone on to international uh, headlines and not in a good way. And let's have a listen to that. Miss Rustin, can I ask you, as as a woman in the government, uh, your reflections on, on the culture inside as it 
got better, worse or no change since the, the bonk ban era? Well, Phil, the only thing that I can... How this ban is referred to, I think, is quite dismissive of the seriousness of the issue, Phil. Um, and I would ask media to stop referring to it in that way. We took it very seriously. And I think constantly referring to it in that way dismisses the seriousness of this issue. It's a very serious issue. Thanks, Anne. So, what are your impressions on the culture? Well, well, Phil, I mean, obviously I can only reflect on my own experience since I've been in this place since 2012, and, and I have to say that I have always felt wholly supported while I've been here. Uh, and I'd particularly note that, you know, since becoming a member of the Cabinet and a member of the ERC, there is nobody who's provided me more support and shown greater respect towards me as an individual than the Prime Minister. And it's just appalling. Most of Australia who watched it said sit down and shut up to Scott Morrison. Someone pointed out that it probably wasn't a very fair question to ask when she's standing right next to essentially her boss. Well, she's barely going to come out and say, yes, the Prime Minister is a sexist pig, and I agree with that question. Yeah, it's terrible working in there, and, you know, she still should have been able to answer the question uninterrupted. Then he could have come in with his, by the way, I don't like that term. So he's grandstanding, he's trying to show himself as this great moralist, which anyone who's watched Australian politics, and there are people on the right side of politics who agree with this too, that, you know, he's sanctimonious, he's mediocre, he's not terribly substantial. And he did nothing more than prove that. Watching Four Corners, I found the really interesting one was uh, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, who I wouldn't have thought would have stood up for this type of thing. And I'm full credit to her, she did. I didn't find anything she said terribly offensive or, or wrong. I'm trying to work out what her motivation was in a way, and in a sense it doesn't matter. When a politician speaks honestly, that should be commended. And I'm not a fan of her politics by any standard. I think she's been quite damaging in the past, but credit where it's due. Now, generally, the public doesn't really care about the affairs of members of parliament. It's, it's their business. It's their private affairs. We don't really need to know about it, but it depends on who those affairs are with. If, if an MP, a member of parliament or a minister is having an affair with one of their staffers, well, there's obviously a whole lot of other issues going on there. There's the, the boss-worker relationship. There's the power imbalance there as well. And are there any MPs out there that are having relationships with journalists or key journalists that are reporting on their, their event. Generally, the public doesn't care about background affairs, but it, if it affects their performances and if it affects the public policy issues out there and the way that some of these policy issues and public events and political events are reported, well, the public gets annoyed about the double standard and the hypocrisy that goes on. Had Gladys Berejiklian uh, been seeing a Victorian businessman with no interest in New South Wales and kept it quiet, you could probably say, well, no, look, I understand that. It is none of our business and there's no advantage here. That, that's something that, you know, she can go away after work and go and have dinner or what have you, talk about her problems and he can talk about his or, you know, whatever they get up to. No one would have minded. Consenting adults is hard because the power imbalance between a supervisor and a worker is one thing, but people enter into these things wide-eyed and fully aware of the consequences, yet there's still a power imbalance. Bob Hawke, Ben Chifley, 
had an affair with his secretary and his secretary's sister. Billy McMahon was rumoured to have had affairs with younger men. While this didn't impact on the good running of Australia, it was really nobody's business. Well, there are other factors that come into this as well, because Christian Porter is the Attorney General at the, at the moment, and he has been responsible for the carriage of the National Integrity Bill as well. But within the proposed bill that he's presented, members of Parliament are specifically excluded from the overall legislation relating to sexual harassment and exploitation. And if there is anything that does come up, it's all going to be held in private. It's one of those things like the the same-sex marriage plebiscite in which they'll be dragged kicking and screaming to it. it. They'll water it down as much as they can and end up coming back to bite them. They forced the same-sex marriage plebiscite to be a postal thing in the hope that people wouldn't bother. And then Tony Abbott said, oh, if we win more than 40%, we've won, and they got 38.6% or something. It's a moral victory. That's right. And the Turnbull government gets, and I notice Malcolm takes, credit for it. But most of the government wasn't keen on it. Now, I know that Malcolm Turnbull was in favour of it. And Malcolm Turnbull has spoken very strongly on the behaviours of of these ministers and genuinely so. Malcolm Fraser was another one who was very genuinely appalled at this type of behaviour. Junie Morosi was having an affair with Andrew Peacock and Don Chip and when Fraser found out he was horrified and furious, he couldn't sack Andrew Peacock but he could sack on chip. This leads to the formation of the Australian Democrats, who, you know, in one of those sort of quirks of history, their leader, Cheryl Curnow, was later brought down in a scandal because she'd been having an affair with uh, Gareth Evans. And the debate raged then was, is this really in the public interest? My general assumption about a workplace is that you go there to work. You don't go there to have sex with your staff. You don't go there to drink alcohol. There's a lot of alcohol within Parliament House as well. But my assumption was that you go to work to do your job. You know, but the basic rule should be something like don't vomit into public bags. Don't kiss young girls in public bars. Don't behave like sexualized bigots. Leave your female staffers alone. These rules can't be that difficult to adhere to. You'd think not. We try not to throw stones in glass houses and, you know, judge not lest ye be judged, etc., etc. But it's pretty easy to not act disgracefully. It's pretty easy to not drink yourself to oblivion unless you've got an alcohol problem. But even if you have, there's support available for it and you should you should take that. It's pretty easy to treat women as human beings. That's what it goes down to. You'd think that taking the job of a minister would focus you on behaving appropriately. Before 25, your brain is still cooking, particularly as a man, as a, as a young man. Your brain's not cooked till 25. Uh, and I'm not defending this atrocious behaviour, by the way. I'm just saying that in Parliament House, we're not really talking about people under 25. There's a couple but most of them are grown men of 45, 50, 55, 60, behaving like unsupervised young men with the same drives, the same selfishness, the same lack of consequence. And I think that's the difference. You can train a young man to behave properly 
somebody like Christian Porter or Alan Tudge weren't ever trained properly. Well, you are right. There's very few people that actually enter Parliament under the age of 25. But these people have been in responsible positions for most of their lives before they enter Parliament. Generally, people entering Parliament to become politicians, they've been in well-established positions where they've got a high degree of responsibility as well. So maybe in the case of Christian Porter, this is how he's always behaved. It's, that's what privilege brings along to you. You know, you always feel like you've got the ability to behave like this and there's never going to be any consequences for you. also another election recently it's not as big as the u.s election but the labor party achieved a five percent swing towards it in the queensland election that was actually just over two weeks ago and they picked up an extra four seats there were a number of issues that came into play leadership values the power of incumbency management of covid 19 issues and the disputes about opening up borders health and safety Labor Party had a weak opposition to deal with. Deb Frecklington wasn't much of a leader. She was almost booted out a few months before the election. Anastasia Palaszczuk has actually been the Premier for five years. And looking at the way that that election was carried out in Queensland, and we could also look at some of the issues in the US election, it's a question of how some of those issues that relate to stability and the management of coronavirus will reflect upon upcoming elections in Australia. West Australia goes to the polls in March next year, so that's coming up pretty soon. But Victoria doesn't go to the polls until late 2022. New South Wales, not until early 2023. So what's happening now probably won't affect those two elections. But there is a strong possibility of a federal election in mid to late 2021, and that's not too far away. This takes us back to what I was saying before. We had not only Queensland, Victoria and Biden, the world is swinging away, or at least we'll call it the Murdoch world, is swinging away from this far-right wing, low government, law and order, to something more moderate. Nobody seems to have pointed out that for a government to gain seats in their third term is a really remarkable achievement. It's happened before, but it doesn't happen often. Usually you win the first one, you gain in the second, and then the third one you either lose or you lose seats. To have won a third term is an achievement, but to have won with an increased majority, I think, is remarkable. Deb Frecklington was too close to developers, and she got reported by her own party to the electoral watchdog in Queensland, for example, and she clearly wasn't a great candidate at that time. In a state where it's nearly 100% Murdoch-owned media, and Murdoch was pushing very hard for the removal of Anna Palaszczuk, to come back with an extra four seats was, even in a Labor state like Queensland, was, I think, a remarkable achievement. It bodes badly for the federal. Now, again, I'm not going to call the election yet. We know that polls are still trying to work out how to measure intention. A lot of the polls were wrong in the United States. The polls were wrong in New Zealand and they were wrong in Queensland. So I'm not going to call the next election for anybody yet. 
I think we can safely say that the West Australian government will probably be returned in 2021, that one. But when you look at the the atmospherics, as people in the media like to say, it's not looking very good for Labor at all. Now, you're absolutely right. We can't sit here and say, oh, this is what's going to happen in 12 months' time because the whole world could dramatically change in 12 months' time. But if you weigh everything up and look at things on balance, Labor generally is not going to do so well at the next federal election unless things change dramatically. And things can change dramatically, but the way that things are looking at the moment, it's not looking so good. It would be easy from Labor leadership to be complacent and say, hey, look, Anastasia, Jacinda, Joe, things are swinging our way and we can let the other side trip up. And the other side will trip up. They trip up every week, but unfortunately, there's still not quite a media that will report on this stuff properly. There's still, too, not an enthusiasm. I think Labor leadership needs to try and find that inspirational, charismatic mould. I know that Anthony Albanese is picked up on a mood in the public that they're sick of that harsh oppositionalism that Tony Abbott, for example, was so good at. But I'm wondering if a bit of harsh oppositionalism might work in his favour at the moment. Well, it definitely has its time and place. One other issue that did develop during this week was that the government was on the back foot after these reports that were coming out in the Four Corners episode on Monday night about Christian Porter and Alan Tudge. They were on the back foot. Joel Fitzgibbons, the shadow minister for the Labor Party, decides that he's going to resign on the Tuesday morning. That deflected a lot of the attention away from what was a serious issue and a serious problem for the government. Now, a stronger leader would be able to put Joel Fitzgibbons back in his place. He's not an outstanding member of parliament. He's been in the parliament for a long, long time, but he's not a a member of parliament that you think the Labor Party would depend on. He's actually been quite mediocre over the years. Now, a stronger leader would be able to put Joel Fitzgibbons in his place. Now, whether you're in the government or in opposition, you're the prime minister or leader of the opposition, you should be able to safely put someone like Joel Fitzgibbons in their place, tell them to keep quiet and to go away. And this gets back to what you mentioned before about the media management of all of these things and the things that the media get interested in. And of course, they're going to be interested in what Joel Fitzgibbons does, because that's the way they behave. They've looked at an issue that's happening on the Labor side of politics. And who cares if Joel Fitzgibbons resigns as a shadow minister for the backbench? But now it's predictably, this has all sparked off all of these issues within the media, that the climate change wars are back. There's disunity within the Labor Party, the leadership problems for Albanese. Now, all of these things might be actually happening but the main game was what was happening on the government side. And Joel Fitzgibbons probably knew that this was going to happen, but he was quite irresponsible to resign on that particular day. It's interesting that as a Labor member, you would pick the day to resign. And I don't know if it was just poor decision making or whether he's slowly edging himself to the Liberal Party, you know, become a Sky columnist or what have you. You say, thanks, Joel, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And you put out a media release at five o'clock on a Friday saying, oh, by the way, Joel Fitzgibbon no longer is a sh- he's on the back bench and we thank him for his service. No questions answered into, what about that Christian Porter? They're taking the heat off Porter and Tudge, essentially. And whether wittingly or not, Joel Fitzgibbon helped that, which was a stupid thing. And it should have been managed better. 
The petition into setting up a Royal Commission into Rupert Murdoch and his media empire, it actually closed on November the 4th and it recorded 501,876 signatures of support. It was tabled by the Canberra MP, Andrew Lee. And the result of this is that there's been a Senate inquiry that's been set up into media diversity as well. So it was pushed forward by Sarah Hansen-Young. The government surprisingly didn't vote against it. It's not actually a royal commission, but given that the Liberal National Party would never actually call for one and would never accept one while they're in government, but this is probably the best thing that we can get at this particular point of time. Submissions are being accepted right now, so if there's anyone out there that wants to complain about the influence of the Murdoch media, now's the time to start writing it up, and they'll report back to Parliament by November 2021. Firstly, I didn't think it'd get to 500,000. The numbers were amazing and incredible, but it did. So that made it even more amazing and incredible. And I think this is part of the mood that we've been talking about, that the old power structures are dying. They're not going to, as I said earlier, they're not going to go easily. I don't think we'll see the Daily Telegraph or the Herald Sun closing next week, for example, or Channel 9 being sold off away from the people who own it now. But, you know, we're probably at the beginning, you know, Churchill, it wasn't the beginning of the end, but it was the end of the beginning. And I think we're at that type of level now. 500,000 is, I think the record before was 50,000, and I can't even remember what it was for. It's for another worthy thing. And when you look through the lists, there's some hilarious ones with 12 and 15 signatures, some real fruitcake and obvious vested interest stuff. There's some worthwhile stuff, but even the worthwhile stuff only has about 1,000 signatures. 500,000 is just, in. It, it says something more than people wanting to sign a petition. I think it shows anger. And we have a government on the wrong side of the history. They blew their period of opposition when they scraped back in with Morrison. And I think they're going to regret that because I think when it happens, it'll be a longer period of opposition. Well, it will be a very important Senate inquiry. I'm just hoping that the title of the inquiry is Senate Inquiry into an Arrogant Cancer on Australian Democracy. And that's what Rudd was hoping that it would be called. So it would be interesting to see what the official title will be. This is probably one of the most important Senate inquiries that will take place for a long, long time. It will be interesting to see what they end up reporting in November 2021. It's, it's almost a year away. So, yeah, if you do want to put in a submission, start writing it up now. The other item that brought my attention was that this week is NAIDOC week and there was a Senate motion that was proposed by the Labor Party and that was to fly the Indigenous flag at Parliament House. And guess what happened? The Liberal Party voted down the motion. A lot of people can argue, well, look, this is just a symbolic thing to fly the flag over Australian Parliament House, but it's an important issue. Why on earth would the Liberal Party decide to vote down a motion to fly the Indigenous flag over Parliament House during NAIDOC week. These things get remembered. A tiny, tiny concession. And in fact, I think the Indigenous flag is an official flag of Australia, so should be so should be flying anyway. During NAIDOC week, what is on their side is that most Australians, sadly, there's going to be enough Australians who do realise, who think, oh, it doesn't matter. They shouldn't fly it because it's not the flag. But there is going to be just enough... Australians, including probably nearly every Indigenous Australian, but quite a lot of non-Indigenous Australians who are thinking, wait on, this is a small gesture, 
but sometimes the smallest gestures have the biggest impact. And I think that's going to um, come back to them and bite hard. Well, consistently, this is a government that has worked against Aboriginal interests across Australia. They did cut $500 million from Aboriginal programs and social support mechanisms throughout Australia as soon as they arrived in office back in 2013. They've consistently cut back funding for Aboriginal programs over the past seven years. They also refused to accept the Makarata. They said that it was going to be a third chamber of parliament, even though it was not going to be anything like that at all. They've actually got an Indigenous person as the Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Kevin White. He's done absolutely nothing for Indigenous affairs across Australia. He's, he's actually worked against Indigenous interests. So just this tiny little element of symbolism, they're not even prepared to do that. Like, I don't know how much it would cost to produce a, a large-scale Aboriginal flag, maybe a couple of thousand dollars. I don't know how much it would cost for someone to get to Australian Parliament House and hoist up the Indigenous flag. Let's pay them a couple of hundred dollars an hour to do that. Might be two hours to do that work. Wouldn't cost them very much at all, but they just will not cede an inch to anything to do with Aboriginal affairs. And it's a government too that, for all its talk, doesn't actually treat flags properly. This stupid Australian flag pin is totally out of convention. You don't wear a flag. You know, a flag is flown. It doesn't touch the ground when it's worn out. You throw it away. This is all. You can find this on the government site. You don't wear a flag as a mask. You don't have it as a handkerchief. You don't have it as a badge. You'll see that military uniforms don't have flags on them because that's how it is. In a sense, I'm not surprised that they don't want to fly But to say it's not proper and it's not the done thing shows the depth of the ignorance of the government, yet again. It'd be quite astonishing if we weren't used to it. Now it's coming up to the end of the year and it also means that it's getting close to Christmas time. In 2018, Scott Morrison did say, if you have a go, you'll get a go, as part of his promise of Australia, whatever whatever that is. Now it's taken us a long time to work out what he actually meant by that and I think he meant that the team at New Politics should be selling political merchandising. T-shirts, coffee mugs, blankets, backpacks, stickers, even coronavirus masks and the first product that we've set up refers to this. I call the Prime Minister. Thank you very much Deputy Speaker and I rise to oppose the motion moved by the Leader of the Opposition. And in so doing, I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the Government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. Yes, it's Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. And if you've got politically minded friends who'd like to receive a Julia Gillard misogyny speech t-shirt or even a backpack or a coffee mug, I think this would be a perfect Christmas gift. What about you, David? Will you be getting one of these T-shirts? I want the T-shirt, the hoodie, the mini skirt, the coffee cup, the mouse pad, the uh, iPhone. I want the lot. I don't see how I've lived without it for so long. If you would like to order some nice things for your friends or for yourself for Christmas, all of these items are available on our website shop at newpolitics.com.au. So we've got the Julia Gillard material up there. We'll be adding some other things up there as well, so keep a lookout for it. That's it for this New Politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. 
We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.